So Mark 1 from verse 21 through to 34. Then they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority, and not as the scribes. Now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. Then they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. Now as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. But Simon's Simon's wife's mother lay sick with a fever, and they told him about her at once. So he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her, and she served them. At evening, when the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. This is God's word, and would you join me as we pray and seek God's wisdom as we begin to unpack this together. Lord God, as we dive into your word together now, we pray that you might Grant each one of us wisdom that comes from you and you alone. May we be humble before you. May we seek to not apply our own human wisdom onto this passage, but may we learn what you are teaching us and what you have given to Mark to write for our benefit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So as we continue working through Mark's gospel this morning, we see Mark continue to tell us about the events of Jesus' life. Now, he's doing this. He's written this whole book. This whole gospel has been written so that we understand that Jesus truly is the suffering servant who was promised in the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Isaiah. As we look at this, Mark is, as I said a few weeks ago, he's building a story of this man who is worth following, a man who is worth trusting, a man who is not just a normal man. If we look at the prophecies given in the Old Testament, if we look at uh, Malachi 4, Malachi 3, Isaiah 40, Isaiah 49, and so many other places, we see that the Messiah, the suffering servant, the Lamb of God, was going to be God himself. Mark has begun this gospel from chapter 1, following a brief introduction there, straight away in verses 2 and 3, reminding us of that prophecy from Isaiah. Now, as we look at the Messiah, the Lamb of God, the Suffering Servant, these are all names attributed to Jesus Christ of Nazareth, we have to keep our eyes out for things that separate him from a normal man. As we saw last week, he is man. He is fully man, but he is also fully God. Now, through the first four chapters of Mark, Mark establishes four clear areas where Jesus has authority, authority far beyond that of any other man. Those things are the authority to heal, the authority over demons, authority over weather, and the authority 
to teach has the authority to forgive sin as well. Now, we see these demonstrated in different ways. Now, Jesus continues to show his authority in these things over the full 16 chapters of Mark, but they're established by the end of the first four chapters. Today, we see the beginning of that introduction to Christ's authority, and his authority is absolute. Today, we see Jesus has the authority to teach has authority over demons, and he has authority to heal. Now, as is Mark's pattern, the story just keeps rolling. This account of Jesus' life just keeps going. Where we left off last week in, uh, in verse 20, Jesus has just called Simon and, and Andrew and James and John to leave their, their fishing equipment behind and to follow him. So we assume that these four guys are following Jesus when Jesus enters into Capernaum in verse 21 and enters the synagogue and began to teach there. Now Jesus taught in the synagogue. Okay, that's not a particularly exciting part of this narrative. I think of teachers and I think, okay, I had some great teachers at school, but some of it is teaching really where you want to go to establish that Jesus was God. Surely there's something more powerful than this. But what Mark does, he shows us what Jesus did and he shows us the people's response to it. If you look at verse 22, we see the people's reaction to Christ's teaching. They were astonished. They were amazed at his teaching. Now you might go, wow, that was just a very well put together lecture. The PowerPoint's presentation just fit perfectly. It didn't distract from the words. Everything worked really well. But no, Mark tells us why the people were amazed. He tells us that Jesus taught as one with authority, not as one of the scribes. From the moment Mark has started writing this letter, we are seeing big changes in Israel. Big changes are coming. There seems to have been a a revitalization in, in, in people's spiritual well-being where they are realizing their sin. They are confessing their sin. They are repenting of their sin. There is spiritual life beginning to thrive and flourish within Israel. And now we see someone who actually teaches with some life, with some authority. Things at this point in Israel are beginning to go on the up. There is one teaching with authority. And I can only imagine what this would have looked like. How great this would have been. Someone teaching with authority. Now that's a scary thing for me to stand here and teach on. Because I'm sure we can all think of sermons or lectures at uni, or TAFE, or or classes at school where we've not thought, not only is this boring, but the teacher has absolutely no idea what they're talking about at all. I'm sure we can all relate to this. We go, that guy is just repeating what the textbook says. Why am I here? I could just read the textbook. If he'd given me his notes in advance, I could have just read them and read them in a far more exciting voice in my head than what I had to put up with in that lecture theatre. This is somebody who comes in and teaches with authority. It's an incredible breath of fresh air. 
Imagine the, the freshest breath of air you can imagine. That pales in comparison to the breath of fresh air that Jesus' teaching in the synagogue was for the people. It's something amazing, something different. Jesus isn't just saying, Rabbi so-and-so said this, therefore we have to repeat what Rabbi so-and-so said. Jesus teaches with authority. It wasn't the normal pattern that they were used to. Now you think things are on a roll here, but we get the impression that there is a noisy intrusion to Jesus' teaching. Now, we don't like intrusions, do we? We don't like it when our plans change. We don't like it when we're reading a book and someone barges into the room and starts talking to us. Like, go away, I'm reading. We don't like it when somebody talks to us during a movie. What's happening? I don't know. I haven't seen it either. Why don't we watch it together and find out? Now, that's not directed at anyone. I'm pointing to Anna here. It's definitely not directed at Anna. But the intrusion here is arguably far worse. It's arguably far worse. We see the type of person who makes this intrusion. It's not just someone who, who genuinely wants to spend time with you or genuinely wants to discuss what's going on here. This is a man who is described as having an unclean spirit. A man who is possessed by a demon. He comes in, he cried out, he's yelling. And we see in verse 25, Jesus just tells him to be quiet. Now, was Jesus just frustrated at being interrupted? Was Jesus going, I was on a roll with, the, the, with that sermon I was giving, and then you came in and interrupted it, now I have to go back a few paragraphs so it can all make sense again. What's so wrong about what happened here? Well, we get the idea the nature of it was wrong by, by Mark making very clear this man had an unclean spirit. But we look at what he said as well. He said, have you come to destroy us? Jesus is teaching in the temple. People are paying close, in the synagogue, people are paying close attention to what Jesus is saying, presumably leading to belief in what he is saying. And this question puts Jesus in the seat of the aggressor in the exchange. The man with the unclean spirit is clearly the aggressor in the interaction, but have you come to destroy us? The accusation is placed upon Jesus. This is not a helpful thing. And then the demon-possessed man acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, the Holy One of God. And we might go, well, what's wrong with that? We look at those words there, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Look at that second part there and we go, that is true. That is truth. This demon has knowledge of who Jesus is. Why would Jesus not let that truth ring out? Now, we could say a lot about this whole interaction. I'm not going to dwell on this today, but something which is very important for us to note just in passing before we keep moving is that knowing who God is does not equal faith. This demon is fully aware of the person of Christ, fully aware that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, but this demon is not one of God's own. We have to be clear on that. Something for us to be aware of in our lives as well. Just knowing about God is not knowing him. 
Well, why this is a problem is as we hinted at with the kids' talk, probably more than hinted, it's fairly obvious, I think. I think the source of a reference makes a big difference in its credibility. If you apply for a job, whose opinion carries more weight? Your mum's or your old boss's? The assumption in that situation is that your mum is biased and her predisposition is to favour you. Maybe she just wants you to get out of the home, start earning money and just get out of her place. Whatever it is, there's the assumption of bias, even if it's not a great bias. The reference to who Jesus is comes from somebody who is biased, but it also comes from somebody who is not a reliable source. It'd almost be as if one of us here today was put on trial in court and the best character reference we could get was the leader of the Hell's Angels Vikings. Doesn't do a whole heap to establish credibility, does it? It's true what the demon says, but it's not trustworthy. The Hell's Angels Vikings just says, oh, Jim, he's a great guy, he'd be awesome for your company. He's a hard worker, really reliable... Never late, high-quality worksmanship. We've got some questions there, don't we? You don't take it as seriously. So while what the demon says is right, he is known as an unclean presence, a man who has an unclean spirit. Jesus is completely right to rebuke him. It's not Jesus being annoyed at an intrusion or being interrupted. Jesus is completely right in rebuking this demon-possessed man, telling him to be quiet. But we see the authority of Christ has been the authority of Christ has been not only to teach, but his authority over demons being brought into this as well. Because not just be quiet, it's get out of him. Leave him. And that is what happened. Now we don't know whether this fellow had this demon possessed man had a habit of running into the synagogue and interrupting. But I would assume that this is a person who has had lots and lots of people tell him to be quiet, probably to no result whatsoever. But not only does Jesus command him to be quiet and the demon obeys that, Jesus commands him to leave and it happens. Jesus' authority is absolute. It is beyond question. The demon doesn't say, well, let me just talk about this with you a little bit more. It's a little bit harsh. Let's have a discussion. Immediately, the demon is cast out. There is a powerful, incredible difference between Jesus and quite literally every other human who has ever walked on the face of the earth. He exudes authority. He exudes authority because as we saw last week, he is fully God and fully man. He is the author of all things, therefore he has authority. Mark tells us all this in such a short, punchy section. He tells us what we need to learn and then he moves on. And now as we move on, we see Jesus' authority over sickness in two different situations as well as a repeat of his authority over demons. Now the first involves Peter's mother-in-law, or Simon at this point in time, hadn't yet been named Peter by Jesus. Now we look at men in the Bible As a fellow growing up, I used to look at guys in the Bible and wonder who was the most courageous of them all. I think Jesus absolutely is the most courageous man in the Bible. 
As we consider other brave or courageous men, maybe you think of David. Particularly when he went out to fight Goliath, he ran towards a giant. Maybe we think of Jonathan, who with a sword bearer killed a whole heap of Philistines in about an acre of land. Because my mother-in-law, who I do love, isn't here today, I'm going to say I reckon the second bravest man in Scripture is Peter, because he lives with his mother-in-law. They enter the house of Simon and Andrew, and James and John are with them. And immediately they tell Jesus that Simon, who later become Peter, his mother-in-law, is sick. We don't know what the sickness was. We don't need to know what the sickness was, but we are told it had her suffering from a fever. She was in bed. She wasn't able to get up and do the things that she would normally do. And when you consider the, the medical expertise and the medical care of the time, we assume this is quite a serious thing that she is suffering with. So how does Mark tell us this sickness is resolved? There are not hundreds of medications written up. Verse 31. So he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and immediately the fever left her. There is nothing else involved here. There are no hoodwinks. There is no reliance on anything else. Jesus, the God-man, healed Peter's mother-in-law, just the way Mark tells us. See, Jesus' absolute authority is being built up here by Mark. It is being presented to us in very serious and real ways where we go, how are we going to respond to this? Because the authority is real. And maybe we look at this and we wonder, how do we respond to this? What does this have to do with me? I think the last four words of verse 31 are really, really important. There's Peter's mother-in-law who we know virtually nothing about and she served them. Seems to be straight away that in the house, they've been at the synagogue, they're back there, she's healed, she serves them. She'd likely been on death's door just a few moments before this, but here she is now serving Jesus. I think this, while brief, while Mark doesn't tell us if there was repentance and forgiveness for sins exhibited here uh, to or from Peter's mother-in-law, this right here, I think, gives us a beautiful picture of what our lives as Christians should look like. Because we might not necessarily have been on death's door with a fever. But as Christians, we know that what Paul writes in Ephesians is completely true, that we were completely and utterly dead in sin. And then Jesus, our great physician, healed us. So what's the response meant to be? We serve him. We give our all to him. That is our response. We don't always see this response to God's wonderful work. 
in the Old Testament, King Hezekiah, is a, he's a pretty good king in Judah. And I think that we will see him in heaven. I suspect we'll see Hezekiah in heaven. But he had a terrible sickness. God healed him from that. Hezekiah then had a Babylonian envoy come to him and he said, look at all my stuff. Look at my gold, look at my treasuries, look at my defences, look at all the wonderful things I've got for myself. And never once did he mention that it was all thanks to God. There was a, a hubris, a, a pride present in Hezekiah. God had healed him and he made life all about himself in those moments and the, the consequence was quite severe. I think we should learn from both Hezekiah and Peter's mother-in-law, this incredible woman we learn about here. The moment she was healed, she served the Lord. It wasn't anything big or fancy, we assume, reading this. It might have simply been just getting a meal ready, preparing a meal. There's things that we can all do to serve the one who has saved us and healed us. We can all show kindness. We can all show love. We can all show love because God has first loved us. When we, need, when we read this, while it's written so simply and plainly, we should do some serious heart searching to, to see if we are serving God immediately and in all things or just when it's convenient for us. Peter's mother-in-law could have said, well, I've been here for quite a while. I haven't been well for a while. Just let me catch my breath a bit. It's all a bit much at the moment. Just let me catch my breath, then I'll be right with you. But no, she served him. Now, I've said this before. But as Christians, each one of us has a life story which, while we all live through very different things, could be summarised by three words of guilt, grace and gratitude. We all lived in sin. And the Spirit moved in us that we recognised our sin. And when we recognised our sin, we knew that we were guilty. And God poured his immense grace out on us. And our response to that is gratitude. Serve him. Guilt, grace, gratitude. Guilt for our sins grace washing those sins away and our grateful response full of gratitude in all that we do and we see Peter's mother-in-law do this and we've received an even greater healing than what she received I included verses 32 to 34 because Jesus is not done yet the day keeps going they're just amazing. We might go, well, that's a one-off case in a synagogue and a one-off case with Peter's mother-in-law. But we look at what happens in verses 32 to 34. All the sick, all the demon-possessed, the whole city is right there on the doorstep. Now, remember, of the, the two sets of brothers who are fishermen that Jesus had called after him, Simon and Andrew, they, they, weren't, they weren't the wealthier ones. Probably a small house in a small part of Capernaum around the Sea of Galilee, but the whole city rocks up. Verse 34 tells us that Jesus commanded silence from the demons even though they knew who he was. As we've seen before, he has the authority to say this with a result. 
it's not just one person. It's not just one sort of disease Jesus heals. He's not a, a one-trick wonder, as some people might try and reduce him to. Various diseases are healed by him. He cast out many diseases and healed many who were sick. He is proving himself as God. Repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand is what Jesus is saying. What more proof could the people have been looking for? What more proof could we have been looking for that the king of the kingdom was there? That he lived and for us we know that he died and was raised back to life. The kingdom is established. The kingdom of God was at hand. Repent and believe. And that same thing goes for us today. Repent and believe in Jesus. Jesus who is not just a man, but Jesus who is fully God and fully man. Jesus whose authority is absolute. Jesus whose authority, as we get to in chapter 2, is even so that he can forgive sin. Jesus who rules on the throne of David forever. This is a call to those who don't yet have faith in Jesus to repent and believe. And for every one of us who has bowed the knee before Jesus, this is a call for us to continue bowing the knee, to not think that we've made it, to not think that we're good enough, to not think that we've arrived, but to continue living gratefully, gratefully under the rule of our forever King. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the second person of the Trinity. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word that we have read and begun to explore this morning. There is so much more that we could say about this which just amazes us at the person that you were, the person you are, our risen Lord. Yet for what we have seen, we pray that you might allow these things to grow in our hearts, that we might ponder them and meditate on them, that we might see more the type of person you are, that we too might know how to live the way you lived. We ask that your spirit might work in us to this end. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.